You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. J-Town, good morning to you guys. It is a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord to open up God's word. I bring you guys greeting from your sister church, Sojourn, J, uh, sorry, <laughs> Sojourn East across town. I want to publicly thank uh, Pastor Zach and Lyle for invitation to come over and to open up God's word. And this week we're going to uh, close out on what's been an interesting and intriguing, a challenging uh, in a life-given service, as we've been thinking about just the book of Ecclesiastes. And the pastor and the preacher and the teacher, he has been wise to be able to instruct and to illustrate our ways just to teach us and say, hey, life is complex under the sun, it's very nuanced and it's very hard. And his words have encouraged us, they've pricked us, they challenged us, uh, they were there not to hurt us, not to harm us, but to be for our good. So this morning we have the ability to journey and figure out how does the teacher land his plane? How does he wrap up everything that he's been saying? And if you guys are able, I'll ask that you guys would please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We'll be starting in verse 7, and we'll be working through through chapter 12, verse 8. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 12, 8. Hear the word of the teacher. He writes, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and that all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dim and the doors of the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are also they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desires fail. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would open our, our minds and our hearts, that we may be a, have a posture that's turned towards you as we're eager to seek and to hear what you have to say, even things that are challenging. 
let us know that it is for our good, not our harm. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first job that I ever worked was at a call center. We handled handled inbound phone calls from people that were experiencing either internet or cable problems. If you've ever worked inside of a call center, you know that it is quite an interesting environment, to say the least. And my primary role while I was there, uh, it was to teach and equip specifically new hires for the job that they would be into, for the job that they were going into. And there was a problem that we were experiencing uh, as a training team. That first year that people were leaving the new hire training and going on a job, there was a high percentage of people that were leaving the organization. They were leaving a company. So we scratched our head. We started conducting exit interviews. Then we start asking a question, why are people leaving? Why are they going within the first year? And a common trend uh, that we found out was there was a disconnect. There was a job that people thought that they were getting into that they signed up for, and it was a reality of what that job was actually like. And it was a disconnect, and people were like, whoa, I didn't expect this. I didn't see that. Therefore, I'm out. So what we did is we launched a, uh, it's like a comprehensive onboarding program. You see, our role was to try to mimic and try to teach people as close as possible what life on a job was going to be like. It was to show them that they could see that and they could taste that before they actually got into it. In comes my buddy Frank the Tank into the story. So Frank's an interesting person. He's one of my buddies at my last job. Uh, He's older. He's prior military. uh, He's a very cynical person. He's blunt, but he knows the job like the back of his hand. Frank tells it how it is. He doesn't care who's listening. He doesn't care who's around. And part of this program, what we would do is we would bring new employees and we would sit them right next to existing employees. So I had to sit people next to Frank. And when I did that, I would back away. My hands a little sweaty. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what Frank's about to say. And it wasn't because Frank didn't know the job. Frank knew the job extremely well. The thing was, Frank said what Frank wanted to say. He didn't didn't have a filter. He didn't care how it came out. He was like, my job is to prepare you, so that's what I'm going to do. And that was Frank the Tank. You see, Frank has been around a block. He understands that he's been in the business long enough to know that everything these employees learn in the classroom isn't sufficient for what they're going to see in real life on a day-to-day basis. He knew that, and he was ready to fill in a gap for these people. He knows that this type of work that they were getting into, it was much more complex and detailed than following a specific policy or a specific procedure. Now, Frank is known to say some stuff that makes HR turn their back and kind of squirm. They're like, ah, that's not really company policy. But I can't deny that at the end of the day, when people sat next to Frank, they were more equipped to handle their job. They were more equipped to know what to expect and to embrace it. And so it is with the preacher of Ecclesiastes. You see, the wisdom that he's given, he has a unique vantage point that he's able to teach us. You see, the the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he's been to the places that you are trying to reach, that you and I are trying to reach. So he's speaking not as one that's in theory. He's like, I've been there. I know what that's like. 
I've tasted that, I smelled that, and now I'm teaching from that vantage point. He has a unique angle. And like Frank, the teacher isn't concerned. He's not trying to coddle you. He's not trying to protect you from the things that he's going to say. Instead, he is trying to prepare you for the long, hard, and a cold road that waits ahead of you guys. He's doing that from a place of love. And before the preacher allows us to to graduate from his training program, he allows us to sit down with him one last time before before he lets us go. So think about that framework as we look through the last uh, portion of Ecclesiastes. We have a front row view where the teacher invites us to sit next to us. He says, come here, my child. Hear from me one last time before I release you into the world, before you live a life well lived. And we'll look under this under three different headings. The first one we're going to talk about is pursuing joy in your youth. Pursue joy in your youth. Question I'll ask you guys. If somebody told you guys that God approves of you seeking joy and actually commands you to seek joy, how does that make you feel? Do you believe that? Is that the mindset or the image that you have of God growing up? Does that match your expectations? The fact of the matter is, God is the creator, and he is the giver of all good gifts. And he desires to rejoice in them all. Just as you guys desire your children to enjoy the gifts as they are unwrapping them in front of you, so it is God expects us to enjoy the things that he has given. Would you guys look with me in verse 9, and let's see what the teacher commands. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. It's the first part of verse 9. You see, God understands that while you guys are young, you have the unique ability to enjoy the pleasures of life in a distinct way that you can't when you get at a certain age. You see, God is not a a grumpy old grandpa in a recliner with his hands crossed, uh, upset that you're having fun drinking Kroger coffee. And if you drink Kroger coffee, there's still hope under the sun, but that's okay. God is not like that. Uh, So if you have the strength and if you have the energy, play football, basketball, go mountain climbing, go play lacrosse, take your kids for a walk, go parasailing. Do everything your heart desires unto the glory of God. You know, at first glance, this seems like what society tries to teach and society tries to tell you. You know, big in culture is a, is a, is a frame YOLO, Y-O-L-O. It means you only live once. And the premise behind you only live once is, look, this life is all you got. They're here and now. If this is all you got, have no regrets. Go live it up. On the far end of that side, we see Gnosticism. And Gnosticism will argue that the physical world, it's bad. It's evil. Don't partake in it. Only the spiritual is what's good. The physical don't have any part of it. And the teacher is, is inviting us and he's taking us to a point where we can experience, evil, oh, sorry, experience joy and flourishing in between the margins. He wants us to be shaped by God, to enjoy the good things of the world, but not to be shaped by those things. You see, although God is inviting us to rejoice in the goodness of the world, he is not inviting us 
to the goodness of the life that he has without him. He is not inviting us to the goodness of life without him. You see, it's truly impossible to experience life apart from the creator who gives life. And this is a distinguishing mark from YOLO terminology. You see, in the last part of verse 9, we didn't read that yet, but here the word of God says, he says, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Rejoice. Understand we will be held responsible. So God is saying that you and I, that we are responsible, that we will give an account for our lives. So here we also have to keep God's character in our, in our lenses, in our perspective. So he's not saying, hey, go after your heart. Go seek the, the, the good things of this life. Uh, just kidding. He said, no, 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 go, go, go do those, go enjoy, go and flourish in those things, but don't do that apart from me. That's where thorns await you. You see, if you, pur- if you pursue joy any other way, I promise you, frustration, it awaits you. Disappointments, it awaits you. And there's longings that await you. So even in your youth, if you get all the money, all the accolades, it can't satisfy your deepest desire. You know, I'm reminded of, there was, a, excuse me, there was a 60 Minutes interview with uh, football player Tom Brady, known as a GOAT. And this interview was right after he won his third NFL championship. And he's sitting down with the 60-minute interviewer. He's asking him about his life. So Tom Brady, mid-20s, he's reached the pinnacle of life. Rich, supermodel wife, three Super Bowls. The interview says, is this, is this all you thought it would be? Is this what you imagined? Growing up in experience, you know, Tom looks and shakes his head. He's like, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. This can't, he says, this can't be it. And when we look at his life, there is nothing else he could get. But Tom is saying, there, there's, there's got to be more to life than this. So the interview and being the man that he is, um, he says, well, what, what is it, Tom. Tom says, I wish I knew. It's heartbreaking that even in your youth, you could get to the pinnacle and still be left wanting. It's not what you're designed for. And the frustration and longing, it literally reminds me, it leaves you like a child with one of those small shapeful toy balls. And with those shapeful toy balls, you know, if you give a young toddler this ball with a bunch of shapes, they don't have the capacity to understand that, yeah, even though these shapes are yellow, the design of the instrument is so that these yellow shapes fit in the corresponding shapes on the ball. So if you sit with a young kid and you just sit back and watch them, they'll take those shapes that look exactly the same, they'll twist it, they'll turn it, they'll mash it, and they'll grow frustrated. Why? Because it doesn't fit. It's not designed to. It's designed to fit a specific way for a specific purpose, not to make the child frustrated, but to give that child joy. You see, through this, God is seeking to protect us. Um, and if you've been along long enough, I know at least in my life, I know there, there are certain uh, decisions, certain sins that we went after in our youth that still haunts a part of us. You know, there are still decisions apart from God that we still wrestle with the ramifications today. And as your pastor, or as a pastor, I'm one to be honest of like, yeah, I've pursued certain things under the sun without God. 
And those things are still costly to this day. The preacher is inviting us to experience a life well lived. The second point that he moves on to, he goes on to explain in graphic details the reality of aging. The reality of aging. You see, our culture is addicted to youth. I think we naively value youth over maturity and wisdom. You know, we're always obsessed with finding the next young thing, the next young gymnast, the next young franchise quarterback, the next, the next young author or preacher. We just love seeing the youth, and we want to make that the face automatically while we diminish other parts of humanity. Now, the preacher, he's being a frank, and he's popping the illusion that we have that youth is the pinnacle, and youth is all that there is. You see, we are prone to hang on to youth as hard and as tight as we can. We don't want to let it go because we're afraid that if it goes, so do we. Our identity is often wrapped up into it. And society recognizes this. And society will charge you, society will charge me the exact right price to make our dreams of youth a reality. There's an app for that, and there's a price for that. I was doing some research this week, and I came across the 2020 uh, Plastic Surgery Statistic Report. And in it, it listed the top five, five cosmetic surgery procedures in the year of 2020. And I'll just list those off in order. One was nose reshaping. Two was eyelid surgery. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, three was facelift. Four was lipo. And five was breast augmentation. And the total amount from these uh, surgical and non-surgical procedures in the year 2020 was $9.3 billion. And that's a COVID year, so that's lower because there's not as many operations that took place. What I want to make unmistakably clear, my purpose in those statistics, uh, it's not to make you feel bad. It's not to shame you. I got close brothers and sisters that have gone undergone, undergone this type of operation. That's not my point. Instead, I want to invite you to a question that I will ask you. And I want you to ponder on that for a minute. The question is, why do these procedures rack up so much big business? How is a cosmetic industry a $9.3 billion industry a year? What is below the surface that is wanting and causing us to fight to turn back the hands of time? What's there? And like the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I won't answer it. I'll let you sit with that. And it's not just for adults. It's part of movies and culture as well. My daughter's favorite movie right now, Disney's Tangled. We watch it all the time, every day, multiple times a day. We just took a, a plane trip to California, and she's watching it, and she just loves it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cute movie. It's, it's pretty cool. But when you sit back and you analyze, like, what's going on in Tangled, it's, it's a little disturbing, Disney puts a Disney effect on it so it doesn't appear that way. Uh, but let's think about Tango for a second. So you have Mother Gothel. And if I'm spoiling for you, I apologize. The movie's pretty old by now. Um, but Mother Gothel, what does she do? She kidnaps an infant princess out of her crib that has magical hair, magical abilities. 
She steals her. She makes her her own. She raises her as if she's her real mother. She locks her in, I don't know, a thousand foot tower for 18 years. And she essentially is doing that to quote unquote protect her. That's the length that Mother Gothel is willing to go to keep her youth. That's the length she's willing to go. And if you've seen the movie before, whenever she starts to age and age starts to creep back in, she calls Rapunzel in. Rapunzel comes, sits down. Mother Gothel brushes her hair, and Rapunzel sings her magical song. And this is the first part of what Rapunzel sings. She says, flower gleam and glow, let your power shine, make the clock reverse, bring back what once was mine, what once was mine. And the question becomes, how are we to rejoice and press on simultaneously by being aware of the undeniable aging process that awaits us all in the grave outside of that? How are we to navigate this this life with hope? How are we to partake in a life we'll live? The preacher alludes to that in chapter 12, verse 1. Look with me what he writes. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near in which you say, I have no pleasure for them. I have no pleasure in them. So he's, he's getting at something much deeper. He's not saying, hey, remember those good old days when times get hard. Remember your high school and basketball uh, championship games. No, 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 no. He says, remember your creator. And the imagery that he's using towards the end of his book, he's switching from speaking in terms of God, and he's saying, your creator. He's getting at something different. He's getting something much deeper. You see, he is saying that we are to remember that God, as our creator, we are part of his creation. You are a creature and God is our creator. What does that mean? It means that we can trust, I can trust, you can trust, that God knows what's best for you. Why? Because he's the author and he's the creator. You and I, we're not self-sustaining creatures. You can't add a minute or a second to your lifespan, no matter what these apps and commercials sell you. See, knowing and trusting that we are in God's hand, it prepares us to live in all seasons on a firm foundation. You could live well in your youth. You could live well in your middle age. You could live well when you're dying. Not because those circumstances, those situations are good. It's because God is good. He's saying, remember in your youth because those days are coming. For some of you guys that are here, some of you guys are around a corner, but the word is those days are coming. And as it is the best interest for a skydiver to pack that parachute before he leaves out the plane, so it is for us to remember who our creator is as we live life and as we step into the days of hit. And in verses 2 to 8, he uses beautiful poetry and uh, allusions to illustrate the, the metaphors and a process of aging and the inevitable grave that awaits us. And I'll summarize what exactly he's communicating in verses 2 through 8. So the author is calling us to remember. He's saying, remember before your eyes grow dim in the parts of creation that were meant to cause light or provide light no longer cause light for you. He says, remember the sun, the moon, and the stars. There's a time coming 
where those lights will grow dim for you. He says, remember your creator before your knees begin to tremble, before you walk around your house and your neighborhood with your back hunched over. He said, remember your creator before you lose your teeth. Remember him. He said, before you grow older, you start to wake up early and you're easily startled by every single noise. Remember your creator before your hair turns white like an almond tree and blossom. Remember him. Before you lose the spring in your step and you become like a grasshopper that drags and limps itself along, remember your creator. And that hit hard for me. I love basketball, played basketball my entire life. And I can't just show up and play anymore. My muscles tear. Was at Seneca Park the other day and, and went just to start playing and I tore part of my calf muscle. And I'm looking around and these other young grasshoppers, they get out of the car and they start hooping like that. I'm like, ah. I remember those days. So what do I do now? I stretch. My body needs them. There's wisdom and understanding the season that you're in. Don't, I can't hold back to that season. It's gone. It's past me. Going on, he says, remember your creator before your body breaks down and life leaves you like a pitcher when it's shattered at the fountain. He says, remember your creator before you return to the dust in which you came. And verse 8 closes this poetic section. Teacher says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he's getting at like, man, how, how do I even find enjoyment in life if that's what awaits me? How am I to press into the, to the joyness in season and out of season throughout different decades of my life if that's what's await me? How do I do that? You see, this is the reality of the undoing of God's paradise that he created in Eden, the aging, the death, and the longing. You see, this is hard, and we've all experienced in that. It's not something you have to be convinced of in your own mind. See, no matter how well or even how wise you live, guess what? The same aging process awaits you. The same grave is awaiting for you as well. Whatever is left of your body towards the end, will go into the ground. But in light of this reality, remember, God is not saying this to, hard, to hurt us or to harm us. It's to equip us. You see, God is not wanting you to walk around like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, always sad, never able to recognize or experience joy. He's not saying, don't, don't crawl around life like that. And on the other end, he is saying, don't run around like Chicken Little and think the sky is falling. It's okay. Things are in control. I am still in control. One of the most helpful statements I've seen, and this came from an author named David Gibson. He wrote a book. It's called Living Life Backwards. Here are a few words that I quoted from him. David writes, he says, putting one foot in a grave is the way to plant the other on the path of life. So he's like, remember where you're going. Keep your foot in life, but remember that the grave is going to await us. He says, the Bible's realism about old age is both urgent, rejoice, make sure you rejoice, but it's also calm. Remember, remember your creator. Remember him. You see, living in light of the end, it has the ability to influence how you live right here and right now. 
a couple of thoughts I would, I would like to lay out as you think about that as well. As you, as you look at the end of your life and you stare back in time and say, man, did my life, did my life matter? Did what I do, was that significant? Did I find life under the sun? A couple of thoughts I'll leave you guys with in this section. Invest and show up well in your relationships now. Time, presence, pour yourself out, show up well for your people. Give praise to God for the things that bring you joy. If that is Kroger coffee, amen. Hallelujah to that. If it's quills or synagogues, amen to that. Rejoice in the little things that you can experience and give thanks to God for his goodness. Hide God's word in your heart through scripture memory. If your eyes are dim, there'll become a time where it's going to be hard to read these little letters. Hide it in your heart so you know that it's there and you can turn to it though your eyes fail you. Tell your spouse, kids, or even close friends why you love them. Tell them why. And as you go throughout life, remember Jesus' word. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Jesus is saying you will experience more flourishing in life when you let things go than white-knuckling them. Preacher doesn't stay here. He moves on to his last section, and this is the conclusion of the matter. So how does he tie in all these books in Ecclesiastes? How does he, how does he land his plane? We'll look at a, a few specific verses. First, I want to bring you to chapter 11, verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like golds. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now, I'm assuming that a lot of you guys are not farmers. I am not a farmer myself. Maybe you can see that. Um, but I wanted to research. I want to say, what is a gold? Like, what, what, what does that look like? What does that do? What's the purpose of it? I don't spend much time on farms. So Gibson mentioned, he said, golds are they're, they're staffs with sharp nails embedded on the bottom of it. They're staffs with sharp nails. And they're used to poke and they're used to prod animals. You see, the purpose of that, it was used to keep those animals from wandering wayward too far to the right and too far to the left. It was to keep those animals, keep the sheep on the right path. You see, we see this in the teacher's heart. Even though he's been saying hard things as we've been sitting down to shadow him, his purpose is not to hurt you. His purpose is to protect you. It's much better to have a sharp poke in love than apathy that will lead to your demise. What does that mean? That means that when you guys come to God's word, there are some things that's going to poke you and they're going to prod you. They do it to me all the time. I read, I, ah, that's a sharp sting. Don't run away from it. It's for your good. You know, the second illustration he uses, he says the words of the wise and their sayings are like firmly placed nails. Nails are sharp. They're, 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 it's, it's desire is to penetrate whatever it is you're driving the nail in between. But the main purpose of that nail is not to cause damage. It is to secure it. It's to fasten it. So if you're creating a deck, putting up siding, whatever the case may be, yeah, you have to draw, you have to bring in a nail to that, but that nail is to keep it still and keep it sturdy for what is to come. It's not to harm it. It's not to split it. It's to hold it fast. So I ask you, 
the wisdom that he is giving us so that we can stand firm amongst different trials and tribulation. Does that sound like any shepherd in particular? See, the author in chapter one, he identifies himself as the son of David and the king of Jerusalem. We know Jesus as a better and truer son of David and a true king of the Jews. It is Jesus' words himself that give life, not just here and now underneath the sun, but his words and life are transcendent. They give us life that leads unto eternity. Jesus didn't deny that there would be hard times. Jesus said, if you're following me, there will be hard times. Don't, don't, don't get it misunderstood. There will be hard times. But he promises that those who follow him and his teaching will be able to hold and stand firm in the midst of tribulation. You know, I'm reminded of this in Jesus' longest teaching in a Sermon on the Mount. At the conclusion of his wisdom, how does he wrap up his teaching? We see that clearly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. After he lays out beautiful teaching, this is how he wraps his teaching. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And understand this. Just because we follow Jesus, that doesn't mean we're exempt from circumstances. Understand that. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on a sure foundation. It was founded on a rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand a slippery foundation. And he says, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus' words doesn't exempt us from trials and sufferings, but equips us to handle them. Not only do we have this teaching, we have the very presence of Jesus. And the last thing we'll look at underneath this section, as he lands his plane, is verse 13, his thesis statement. Verse 13, it reads, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Essentially, I've said all I need to say. All has been heard. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's the whole responsibility of man. You see, to fear God and to keep his commands, it's not a burden. It is an invitation to life. I'll say that one more time. The invitation to fear God and keep his commands is not a burden. It is an invitation for you and I to come and find true life. Do you realize that? Do you know that? You see, fearing God is not thinking that God is a, a cosmic bad guy with a huge hammer that's ready to drop it on you whenever you veer to the left and the right. Fearing God gives you the unique ability to recognize in his presence you are a creature, a creature that is fully dependent and relying on a creator who made you. You see, true wisdom is derived from this understanding. We see this even in Proverbs 9.10, where he writes that wisdom, sorry, reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Recognize whose presence you're in and what is your relationship to that God is the beginning of becoming wise. So us on a ground level, as we live our lives, as we leave this building, what does it mean, or sorry, what type of neighbor 
Should I be one who fears God and obeys God? What type of spouse should you be and I be? One who fears God and one who obeys God. What type of coworker, teacher, child, student, coach should we be? One as creatures, one who fears God and one who obeys God. See, it's only there that relationships and societies have the ability to flourish when we recognize that we are created by God and we are to live according to his design, according to his purpose, and according to his will. We have to understand that God is for us and not against us. His word is to heal us, not to hurt us. And I'm reminded that God's greatest wisdom, it didn't come through a prophet, but it came through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul identifies Jesus in 1 Corinthians as both the power and the wisdom of God. God's final revelation, he's like, I've sent others to show you wisdom. God's saying, I'm going to show up as wisdom personified. You know, if you're here in your youth, I see a lot of young faces. If you're here in your youth, remember your creator in your youth. Remember God now. Remember him. Do not buy what society tells you will make you happy. Society will lead you left, right, up and down, back and forth. Try this. Taste this. Get this. I'll let you in on a secret. It won't last. Everyone may be doing it. It may be popular, but it won't stand up. It won't last. Remember God in your youth. If you're here and life is slowing down for you, if you find yourself in your middle ages, you're like the grasshopper that's kind of lingering along. You're not having that spring that you want to have. Maybe you feel the pain and the suffering that you're dealing with in this season. Remember your creator. Remember, he's the one who sustains you, not yesterday's glory. It's not your kids that you live through in their youth to find life. It is your creator that you hang on to. Understanding and recognizes his promise that he sees you, he loves you, and he says that I'll never forsake you. Hold those truths. Remember those truths. You know, maybe you're here. The ways of life have smacked you in the mouth. You're cynical. You're angry. You're tired. A little bitter. You know, perhaps you had a different expectation of what your life was going to look like. And it's not lining up with what is. Maybe you find yourself in a hard spot, maybe sick. I don't know your individual stories. But if that's you, my invitation is to step into the true life with Christ that gives you joy. Step into a life with God that causes your flourishing and it causes your good and not your harm. It allows flourishing in your own life and those that are around you, those that are near to you as well. Jesus and his invitation, it's not just distance. Jesus came and he, he, he drew near. He entered in. He experienced what you and I experience. There wasn't a disconnect. He was there. In Jesus' invitation, he's saying, come to me. He says, hey, you're hungry? You're looking for some, for some bread? I got it. I got what it is that you're longing for. He says, you're thirsty? 
You're looking for some water that doesn't run out, that won't leave your mouth parched. I know where to find it. It's here. So Jesus said, whatever your longing is, I know it and I can provide it. Why can Jesus provide it? Because he created you. He knows what you need. And he says, it is me. Come. And it's that beauty that recognizes that all of our suffering, our our pain underneath the sun, it's not in vain. There is a time coming where God will make all things new. There's a time coming where we will not age. There's a time coming where there will be no more tears. There will only be rejoicing. The light that will be provided will be the glory of God and not that of a son. There is a time coming, and that time has been inaugurated. It's been ushered in, but it's not here in its entirety. There is a day coming where God will undo all that has been done and make all things new. Would you pray with me? Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.